There we go. All right, so Book of Ephesians, if you are not aware, we're turning there. We're going to see if we can cover the entire thing in a single morning. Uh, we will see how that goes because there's so many different, as you can tell from the introduction, there's so many different references to the Spirit here. Um, but one of the most central aspects of all of this is, uh, is studying how it is that the Spirit of God has actually changed the community of faith. Before what held together the people of God was that they were Jews. Ethnically and religiously, they uh, held so much in common. They held the same language. They held the same traditions, the same habits, the same holidays, the same dietary restrictions, the same laws, the same nation, the same king. Okay? Really easy to maintain unity if that's your only goal. The difficulty comes in is that when the gospel, surprising to everyone, went past Jerusalem and Judea, even into places like Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world, and now all of a sudden, you have a community of faith that is not sharing the same language, that does not share the same habits, that does not share the same traditions, same holidays, same uh, dietary restrictions, same law, or same king. We all have different kings, we all have different laws, we have different traditions, we have different everything. How in the world are we supposed to be a community of faith? A lot of people throughout history have tried to solve this by making state churches, wherein those who attend our church are all the same ethnicity, are all the same traditions, are all the same habits, are all the same dietary restrictions, whatever the case may be. Is that what the goal of fellowship is to be? To be uniform? No. Um, and this is one of the things that I say often. I don't want you to become more like me. I want you to become more like Christ. I want me to become more like Christ. I'm not satisfied where I am. I'm not satisfied where you are. I do not want us to find what we agree on and then define ourselves by it. I want us to find Christ and define ourselves by him. That's what Ephesians is all about. Now, we have been walking through the Bible chronologically. That means as we finish the book of Acts, we are still there where Paul is in prison in Rome awaiting to hear trial with Caesar. While he's there, he writes the prison epistles, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, um, Gla uh, no, not Galatians, uh, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, what am I missing? Col yeah, thank you. Uh, Philemon, thank you. Um, so those are all being written basically the same like two-month span to different churches along the way as he's going to Rome, when he gets to Rome and he mails them out. And as we finish off the book of Acts there, he remained there several years writing, teaching, and sharing the gospel. So here we have a Jewish former Pharisee in Rome awaiting his trial as a Roman citizen writing to Greek-speaking churches in Asia Minor. And so one of the things that's going to be first on the docket is, what do we hold in common? The answer is nothing outside of Christ. They don't even speak the same language. They don't know Hebrew or Aramaic. That would have been his natural, but he writes it in Greek. Yes, sir. How do you, he, write, he writes them in his own language. He didn't speak all these different languages, did he? Don't so Greek, Greek was the English of the day. Everyone knew Greek, but like his natural heart language would have been Hebrew. Aramaic, some version of it there, best as we can piece together. But he would have known Greek, absolutely. Especially since he was, uh, uh, he was schooled in Tarsus um, under Gamaliel. So he absolutely knew Greek. And then he also wrote. So everybody basically that he's writing a letter to should have been able to understand Greek. Would have been able to understand Greek. Yep, yep. It was, it was the language of the day. Uh, in the Roman Empire. It wasn't Latin, uh, as much as people think it was. It wasn't. That was the Roman language. That, but the Roman Empire had so many people, and because of Alexander the Great, everybody knew Greek. That's just the way of it. Um, a remarkable thing that God chose that moment in history to send the New Testament, by the way, and written in Greek, everyone in the world can read it. Uh, it was the first time in history that that had happened. Just putting that out there. Um, so when, when he's writing to them, you'll see something that is, that is uh, part of everything in these books. Colossians, Philippians, and Ephesians, the prison epistles, and Philemon are all written with the same concept in mind. We have a higher calling than our culture. 
And if we don't think that there is, then we will never understand the fellowship of the Spirit and the unity and the bond of peace that is ours in the Spirit of God rather than in whatever country we live in. So let's dive into this because he connects it back with primordial salvation and then working forward. So here he writes to a Gentile audience. Uh, the longest sentence in the Bible, by the way, if you're not familiar, if you just like little factoids like this, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 is a single sentence in Greek. It is the most complicated sentence in Greek. It has one thought and one thought alone. Uh, and that is the blessing that goes to God our Father because of what salvation he has enacted. So I don't want to just study the reference to the Spirit at the end there. Uh, I want us to actually read the whole thing uh, because it's a single sentence. Blessed, uh, this is verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved, and in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richnesses of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the tr word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire full possession of it to the praise of his glory. That is a remarkable sentence. The whole point of it comes down to God is to be praised for the salvation he works. And then he shows us the detailed format of how salvation works. It's pretty incredible the way he spells this out. But our main goal here is not to understand Ephesians, though a nice secondary goal. Our main goal here is to see what role did the Spirit have in our Christian life? Because here he mentions right at the tail end, if you caught it in verse 13, the role of the Holy Spirit in the salvation that God is to be praised for. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's referring to Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Or with the Holy Spirit of promise. There's two ways to translate that. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? What do we learn of the Holy Spirit from this? What does it mean that we are, well, first of all, what does it mean that we are sealed? What is a seal? If you write a letter in the ancient world and you put a wax seal on it and you put your signet ring on that, makes it official, makes it verifiable, we know where it came from. By the way, who can undo the seal? You can't. You have to be worthy. You have to be the one to whom it is written in order to undo the seal. That's kind of how it works. When you get a letter in your mail, um, and there's that, there's that, we just have a glue seal on it now, but if that's opened, you're going to be calling up the post office and going, I'm sorry, who violated the terms of a letter? You're not allowed to unseal that. That's my letter. That's part of something given to me by somebody else. Maybe we don't like whatever the letter says, but it's still addressed to us. The same expression comes in the book of Revelation, by the way, that the earth itself has seals on its deed that only Christ is able to open. We aren't able to do that. We can't usher in the, the new heavens and new earth. It's not our world, not on that term. It belongs to Christ. So here, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Why? Because we belong to Christ. This is why when people go, oh, well, somebody can be a Christian and then they can just change their mind and go do something else. No, you can't. Okay? Your free will is not stronger than God's. I promise you. If you think it is, go read the Old Testament and find all the time that people try to use their free will to over, overrule what God was intending. God has intended before he created the world to save those who are his, right? The perseverance of Christians is not owed to their great piety. It is owed to God's great ability to save them, right? And so the whole purpose behind here is the role of the Spirit is that he seals us. Finished. 
okay? But what is our experience with him? Right? It kind of goes back to the base of why do we study this, this topic at all? Why are we studying the Holy Spirit throughout all of Scripture? Because, as we'll see in the way he expresses this, if you want to know what heaven is like, pay attention to the work of the Spirit of God. That's what he's about to say. Watch what he says here. Verse 14, he identifies the Holy Spirit as the guarantee. That is the, other, another way to translate that is the earnest money. When you buy a mortgage, well, when you buy a mortgage, when you sign up for a mortgage and you purchase a house with the mortgage, you have to put an offer in to buy it from somebody and it comes that offer with earnest money, doesn't it? Right? Maybe 3% of the house or 1% of the house, whatever the case may be. It could be 10% of the house value. Hi, I'm really serious about the purchase of this. Here is the guarantee of that. That is what God here is expressing that the Holy Spirit is to Christians. It doesn't mean that we have full redemption today. We don't. Peter talks about it. He says there is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Whatever whatever full salvation looks like, meaning we see God face to face, whatever all of that is, the Holy Spirit is the earnest money of it. So you want to know what the full amount of it is? Pay attention to him and extrapolate that out. Life unending. And and he's about to explain to the Ephesian church all of the ramifications that is for us. If he's the earnest, no, excuse me, since he's the earnest money of the inheritance that we are to acquire, then if you want to know the inheritance that belongs to us, pay attention to his work. Pay attention to what he's doing in your life. Things that you can't take credit for, that he is doing, sometimes despite you. Sometimes in accordance with you. There are times that I have praised for, prayed for wisdom. God has given it to me. And I get to rejoice that I got to be a part of that. There's other times where the Spirit of God works on me in ways that I didn't anticipate. And I'll tell you probably ways I didn't really want. And he does it anyway. Because it, as we were talking about on Wednesday night, it bends us towards life. Sometimes even without us knowing it, God grows us up. And so what Paul is addressing to this Ephesian church is just saying, this is, this is the outcome of salvation in our experience so far. Is that with this unfinished reconciliation of all things to Christ is currently in stasis. The Holy Spirit has been given. There is a salvation and an inheritance that will one day be fully acquired. But today, what we have is the Spirit of God testifying to us about who we are, showing us who he is, and teaching us to live in unity with one another, especially when we differ. So that goes into this whole grounding here. That's just the introduction. Let's move on. Verse 15, for this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Notice the entirety of the Trinity is involved in that verse with this intention. The Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit. Hmm? Now, how does he know all of this? Uh, does he receive letters when he's in the prison? Yes. Yep. Yeah, he rece- uh, when he was in prison in Rome, uh, he could receive any visitor. He was just on house arrest. He was a Roman citizen. Uh, and so they had a different setup uh, in jail than anyone else did. Yeah. House arrest. So basically, kind of what we were all during COVID. (laughs) Not much different. You can receive visitors, but stay in your homes. Right? So so it was just, he's awaiting trial. So he's basically out on bail, if you will. But don't go anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. So as he's saying this, you know, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, oh, uh, so keep going. Not done with the sentence. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Here's the thing. To understand more about the act of God in the world, you cannot just look at your own life. This is what he's saying. You need to see the glorious inheritance of God in all the saints. There's a certain uh, part of what God is doing in the world 
that you, Christian, cannot see if you're trying to live the Christian life away from other Christians. You have to be near other Christians to see this. That's what he's saying here is that reality is that the riches of his glorious inheritance is spread amongst all the saints. This is one of the great things. In the days of Moses, how many people had the Spirit of God? Just him. Until he prayed fervently for it and Jethro, his father-in-law, gave him advice. Maybe you should receive help from all the elders. And so the Spirit of God was then divvied up between the 70 elders and Moses. And what did Moses wish for? I wish that all the people would have the Spirit of God. I, I, wish, I wish that they would get to see what this is like. Not so that they could you know, lead everyone well and everyone stop grumbling. No, no, no. Even, even the elders had, of Israel had differences among them. It happened in the first 10 minutes, if you recall. Two of them refused to come to the tent of meeting and instead were prophesying out in the camp. Right? And then there was messengers that came up and said, Oh my goodness, Moses, they're doing something different than you. <laughs> what was Moses like? Okay. It's fine. If Moses is trying to spin everything after his own, then oh, they shouldn't do anything different than Moses. But what he's expressing is the same thing that we now see throughout the church. They're worshiping with different songs than you. They're preaching a different manner than you. They have a different way of fellowship. They, they honor different holidays than you. All of these issues that come up in the church. Okay. Are they aiming towards Christ? Are they an expression of the inheritance of God in the world? Do they love God? Do they love their neighbor? Primarily, other Christians that are different than them is actually how the New Testament describes neighbor. In order to see what God is doing, you have to engage Christians that are different than you. Otherwise, you will think that God only loves people like you. It happens so easily when we isolate ourselves. And so, what, and Ephesus is, is an inland, it's not a, it's not a seaport. It could very easily have isolated itself. And what Paul is saying is, that's, that's not the way of understanding these things. The way of getting down to this, how it is that our the eyes of our hearts are enlightened, he says in verse 18. How it is that we know what is the hope to which he has called us is watching what he is doing amongst Christians that differ with one another. It is not a, uh, what, what's, the, what's the tech uh, joke? It's not a bug of the church that we are all different. It's a feature. It's not an accident that we're different from one another. It's on purpose so that we see what God is doing in the midst of all of us. So Paul uses this opportunity to tell the entirety of the church the hopelessness that we started with and then guides us to the hope that we are. If you're not familiar, one of the best expressions of salvation in the scriptures is found here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He starts with the placement of all Christians before salvation. What was our relationship to God? We were dead. Right? How different were we in death from everyone? Nope, we're all dead. All. Everyone. Was it, oh, maybe the Jews have... Nope, everyone. Dead in trespasses and sins. We were following something, though. He speaks of them almost like zombies. You were following the course of this world. This world that will lead you the way of death. Right? Just the way of it. Dead people do dead people things. That shouldn't surprise us. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of this perennial surprise to me that Christians are surprised when dead people do dead people things. Go, well, maybe our culture should be healthy. Maybe it should be more moral or whatever. Dead people doing dead people things should not surprise Christians. We did that. We were once dead in trespasses and sins. So what does he say? He evens the playing field between Jews, Greeks, and everyone. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, lowercase s, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, if you don't think that that is a significant verse, you do not know what it is like for a Jewish Pharisee to be writing to a Greek-speaking Gentile church. We all did this. 
every one of us, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. Now, if the law was all that there was in Scripture, that would just end right there. That's it. That's what we were, that's what we are, end of story. Nothing has occurred. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are also still just there. Our faith would be in vain, we'd still be in our sins, we'd still be dead. And so we have one of those great conjunctions in the New Testament here. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he resurrected us. That's the language of salvation. He made us alive together with Christ. He reminds them, by grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only were we called by him, but every step of our Christian walk was also called by him. Which means, how much credit do we get to take for what good comes in our life? Zero. When we walk the way of life, as we talked about on Wednesday night, who gets the credit for what good we did for this? Not us. The Spirit of God dwelling in us has ordained certain steps for us to take on the way to life. You say, well, what about the way of death? That's your contribution. Congratulations. That's our contribution. You say, well, I understand that in salvation. I contributed the sin that was to be forgiven. Yes, it has not changed in sanctification. We contribute the times of our life where we pull away from the Lord and we give thanks to God for those times where we chase him down because we know that that is not there because of us. That is a gift of his. Our faith is, his grace is. Notice the order of that, by the way. We are saved by grace through faith. Grace comes first and then faith. A lot of people think they are saved by faith. No, you are regenerated, raised to the newness of life in Christ, and that new life, the first thing it does is trust Christ. That's the order of salvation. It is not your faith wakes you up. What faith? That's like saying to a skeleton, if you just push this button, you will find salvation. Uh, dead things do dead things. You, there is nothing that can be done. God comes in and is gracious, saves. That saved person that comes to life, first thing they do is trust him. Old Testament version, trust in the Lord with all your heart. New Testament version, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Same exact statement. And then he calls to these Gentile Christians. He says, therefore, remember, remember, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were even alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the state of Gentile unbelievers at that time. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Not he gives us a good example to be peaceful. No, he is our peace. He does not just give us a good example of how to make God happy. He accomplishes peace on our behalf. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It says that peace that we have with God now goes far beyond the borders of Israel. You do not have to be Jewish in order to have peace with God. Now, you may have peace with God and by extension, have peace with Christians amongst all the nations of the world. Breaking down that significant dividing wall that was standing between Jews and Greeks. In fact, he said it was so peaceful that it killed the hostility. <laughs> I love it. Killing it with peace. 
And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and to those who are near, Israelites. Same message, same peace, same God. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice again the entire Trinity in a single verse. Through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Every single thing that God is doing and the way that Paul is expressing it is saying that same unity that exists in the midst of everything and the roles of the Trinity happens now in the church. He's preaching peace to those who are far, preaching peace to those who are near. Gentiles, Jews. And so now this Jewish former Pharisee says to these Gentile Christians, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. These are all former pagan idol worshipers. You have to understand how significant of a switch this is in a single generation. There is no way, and we have walked through it in the book of Acts, there is no way that the church becomes multi-ethnic without the Spirit of God. It didn't happen. What would the apostles have done? We read their reaction to all of these things. Even Paul. Peter, John, they went to Cornelius' house. The Spirit of God literally had to drag them there to show them something and display it in front of their eyes so that they would even consider the possibility that God was going to send the gospel to the Romans, to the Gentiles, in the same way without circumcision. So he defines the fact, you are saints and you are members of the household of God. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and the Jewish prophets. There's no accident he includes that. I'm sorry, Judaism does not have a claim on the prophets unless they follow the Messiah they prophesied about. We are Gentile Christians. I'm pretty sure all of us are Gentiles. We are Gentile Christians, and our heritage goes back not just to the apostles and Christ. It goes back to the prophets of the Old Testament, to Moses, to Noah, to Adam. They are our lineage. Abraham is our father, Romans 5 says, because of the faith that we have is the same faith that he had. Christ Jesus himself is this cornerstone of the household of God. Beautiful picture. I love this. Jesus is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's, uh, if you take this and combine it with 1 Peter chapter 2 and the description of the, the exact same picture, the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, we'll get to 1 Peter eventually, And saying the same thing is you have two foundation stone runs, the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone is Jesus, and all of us are living stones growing out of that. It's absolutely a tremendous picture to say that not only are we lined up with the apostles and prophets, that's the scriptures, but we are all of us connected. It says out of him, in him, we are built together. Every single stone in that temple, in that picture, is connected to Christ. We do not connect to Christ through the apostles. We do not connect to Christ only through the prophets. We all connect to Christ straight, directly. Because in him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Ralph, you build houses for a living. Would you say that if you laid the foundation, you came back the next day and a house grew out of that foundation, would you have some questions? Yeah, I'd want to move. What he's saying? He says, it, it's not like we lay the foundation stones of the prophets and the apostles, and now we just add one more, add one more. No, it just comes out of it. How? We don't know. The Spirit of God does what he does, and you don't get to trace it out. So, so when, when someone comes up to me, I go, oh, the Spirit of God told me this. You don't have that level of clarity. Nobody does. Even the apostle doesn't have that level of clarity. The wind blows where it blows. And I'm telling you, unless you had leaves on a tree that were rattling in it, or, or the hairs on your skin, you wouldn't even know it because you can't perceive it. 
The same thing with the Spirit. You may be able to see that there's wind going through that tree, but you can't see the gust that's 500 feet up until we build wind turbines and find out it's actually quite windy up there. And this is the main point that we're in here for. Look at verse 22. In Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. No, that is not an individual in him, you. I'll do it in the southern vernacular because they actually have a plural second person. In him, y'all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God is going to live in his people. What's that? Yeah, it does. I will, I will tell you that... That is one of the most atrocious things that we have dropped from the English language. We used to have it. It was ye. There was, there was uh, you and ye, and ye was the plural. It's like, it's like the, the, the plural first person uh, is, well, there's, there's I and then there's we. You and ye. It, it's, we lost it, unfortunately, to time, and now the vast majority of the uh, interpretational difficulties we have is we miss the plural you when it's referring to the church and it's not referring to you. And unfortunately, in, in our society, we think everything's about us because we're a bunch of narcissists. And so it plays right into our, it plays right into our problem. And so I, whenever it's really important, I try to make distinction because in Greek, they're two completely different words, but we just can't translate them that way anymore because our language got too simple unfortunately. So, it's our bag to carry. Let's keep reasoning. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, again, remember, he's in prison in Rome. He's, uh, spoiler alert, he's going to be executed. Verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, you want to know what that great mystery is throughout all of that length of humanity? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is one of the most glorious sentences in the Bible, actually. Because what he's saying is, there was a mystery that God... Now, mystery is not like, a, ooh, you know, curious, you know, how, how that works out. No, mystery in biblical terms is something that God did not tell us about. The mystery of the salvation of the Gentiles, he did not tell us explicitly about in all 39 books of the Old Testament. There were whispers of it. Nineveh under Jonah, uh, Naaman the Hittite, right? Uh, Uriah the Hittite, you, you know, Rahab uh, the Canaanite, you, 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 the Egyptians that left Egypt with the uh, Israelites to wander in the desert. There, there were whispers of it. There were pieces of it. But as far as for God going out into the Gentile world on this level, the Old Testament never is mentioned. Not because... God didn't know about it, but because that wasn't for them to know. And that level of humility needs to come to us as well. There is a great deal about salvation that we do not know. And God has not told us. Like, how does salvation itself actually work? In the, in the extended, long infinity of the future. How does that work? How does fellowship work in heaven? I can't even wrap my head around living my own life without my sin. Living around other Christians without their sin? Like, what is that even like? What is fellowship without sin? Can you imagine it? The answer is no. Even our imagination is stained by sin. We cannot wrap our heads around the concept of living in the full face of God with other Christians, none of whom will ever sin against each other ever again. Like, it breaks our mind to think about that. Because we like to think, you know, well, when I go to heaven, I'll be reunited with the people I love. No, 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 hang on a second. 
when you go to heaven, you will have an infinitely better relationship with every single Christian than the best relationship you ever experienced on earth. Can you wrap your head around it? No. No, not even close. But because we're so bound to this idea of our experiences and trying to figure it out from that, it would be similar to, oh, I don't know, it would be similar to, well, we saw it, didn't we? We saw it in Jonah. Go to Nineveh, your mortal enemies, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire that's going to, in a few years, come destroy the ten northern tribes. Go to them and tell them I'm about to destroy their city. That was literally the only message. It wasn't a whole book. It was one sentence. Forty days hence and the city will be destroyed. There was no call to repentance. There's no call to salvation. There's no message about the law. Nothing. Go and tell him. And what was Jonah's reaction? No. No. I don't want to tell him. If I tell them that you're going to destroy their city, they're going to repent. They're going to fear you because they know who you are. And you're going to forgive them. So I'm going to take a boat and I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go to Spain. It's where Tarshish is. As far away as you can get from Nineveh. Gets on the boat. What happens? Well, one thing led to another, and he's barfed up by a fish after dying, which he writes about in in Jonah chapter 2. God brings him back to life, partially digested by a fish, sets him on his feet, walks to Nineveh. Goes to Nineveh. One sentence. Takes three days to walk across the city. It was that big. And a lot of people said there's no way it was that big. We dug it up a hundred years ago. It's that big. It's huge. Forty days hence, this bleached, hairless, soggy, fingernailed dude. Forty days hence, and God's going to do to you what I had had to me. Here's the crazy part about it. If he had never gone to Tarshish, he wouldn't be bearing the marks of death all over him and his message wouldn't have worked. God had in his mind to save not only the people of Nineveh in that generation, which he did, but also the men on the boat. Because for the first time, they made sacrifices and worshipped the God of Jonah. God had in his mind when he came to Jonah in the first place to save two groups of people. Jonah was the perfect guy for it because he ain't going to Nineveh unless I kill him first. Okay, then run to Tarshish. Wouldn't you know it? God had a group of men on the boat that he wanted to save too. And Jonah just so happened to jump on the right boat. And their lots just happened to fall to Jonah. To explain why this storm that is supernatural, that terrifies mariners in the ancient world, was there. And why when they tossed him into the water, a huge fish caught him. God's ways are much, much higher than ours. And when Paul here is addressing the reality that there is a mystery kept hidden for long ages... And that is the salvation of the Gentiles. It is not because God changed his mind. It is because God has in mind to save two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles alike. And make them into one new man. The only way that is going to happen is if you leave behind these identities of Jew and Greek and slave and free and all of this stuff that you think is so important and defines who you are, but when you become a Christian, something else takes over. Christ is our identity. We are being formatted. We are being formed. We are being sanctified into the image of Christ now. And so those things, those dividing walls that kept us apart, whether we are Irish or whether we are Moroccan or whether we are Nigerian or Chinese, those, those differences wash away. 
Why do they wash away? Because we are hoping in the same Christ. Does that mean our fellowship is perfect now? No, no, no. The Spirit of God, He's just the earnest money, just the down payment, showing us what God is intending to do in the future. The story of salvation is not even half finished. That's one of the most remarkable things about how the New Testament ends. Is he just says, endure to the end and you'll be saved. You say, well, endure what? Yes, everything and anything. You all, disparate Christians, are living in a world that at certain times and in certain empires is going to kill you too. They killed me, Christ says. What do you think they're going to do to you? They hated me first. If you're going to actually preach in a way, in a fallen world, that has no biblical worldview whatsoever, a consistent gospel message, they're going to hate you. How many Christians would rather be liked by the culture rather than preach faithfully? That's a big question. The answer is lots and lots and lots and lots of people would sooner be loved by this culture and this world. And so what is the application to this to the church? We're not going to finish this whole chapter, but at least let's get to chapter 4. Verse 1. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's how we walk worthy. Humility, gentleness, patience. Bearing with one another in love. And here's the big focus here. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is not eager to maintain all the stuff that we, norm, that we all do and have the same habits of. Nope. That's not a healthy church. A healthy church has disparate habits. People who have different concerns and different cares because guess what? It takes all types of Christians for the church to function. We have all sorts of different types of gifts. We do not all have the same gifts. That's a, that's a great thing. Otherwise, we don't need one another. Right? If you surround yourself only by people that agree with you, guess what? You're irrelevant. What's your contribution then? Zero. You must be with Christians that differ from you. I was at an ordination yesterday. I was, I was sitting on an ordination council. And we got to entertain this a bit. Those of us on the council differed from each other in multiple areas. Ralph, you were there to see this, right? And we even differed from the one who was being, not counseled, questioned. We differed in things. We weren't there to hash out the way that all of us can come on things that are tertiary issues to full agreement and then impose it on somebody. No, we were there to say, what is your goal? What are you aiming at in doing a practice different than this? What, what is your purpose? What is your aim? But is Christ... And that consistently is borne out in your testimony? I don't care if you do things different than me. I don't care if you have preaching habits or, or, or worship habits or fellowship habits or outreach habits that are different than mine. God be praised that he uses all manner of Christians that are in all manner different than us. And you love blood drives more than any vampire I've ever known. I don't share that love. I love that you have that love. I don't aim to become you, and I don't aim for you to become like me. That is a great outreach possibility in the middle of a culture that you have love for. Wonderful. What can I do to help? That, that is the attitude of Christians towards one another when we differ with one another. These things are not, everyone must be like me. No, no, no. We must all becoming more like Christ. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. You want to know what heaven is like? Look to what the Spirit of God is doing. He's making us more like Christ. And so there enters the possibility that when we enter the eternal state, we will not sin against one another. Why? Because we'll have received the inheritance of what Christ is given to us, who sinned against no one. His entire life. Can you imagine how much patience he had? Patience. Think about it. Just, just, just for a second. Imagine you having created the heavens and the earth and all the things that exist. Upholding it by the word of your power. Being born as one of your 
created beings being sinned against constantly by your siblings, by your parents, despite what our Catholic friends say about his mom. Friends, countrymen, priests, the elders of the city, bad leadership, bad parenting, bad friends, and not going absolutely stark raving mad. I have no idea how that level of patience is possible. He lived among us for 33 years and did nothing out of turn, losing no temper, wielding wrath properly, which is nearly impossible for humans to do. Sorrowing without losing hope. It is simply an astounding thing to read of the life of Christ, to realize what he did in his incarnation will be our every day for all. That's how much salvation has accomplished. We just haven't seen it yet. This mortal must put on immortality. This fallible must put on infallibility. We must pass through the grave first for that. Why? Because this flesh loves sin. Don't you know it? Don't you know those sins that will easily entangle you? At a moment's notice, come across your vision, come across your mind, whatever the case may be. Come across your temptation, whether to despair, give up, to wrong somebody, to lash out in anger. We are called to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to say that I earn the gospel. No, no, no. It's to say I walk in a manner worthy of a person that already bears it. When we look at the law of God, we do not see something that we must fulfill, otherwise God's going to zap us with lightning. No, no, no. The law of God is fulfilled in Christ. He even stated that explicitly, right? Christ is the end of the law to all who believe, as the book of Romans puts forth. But when we look at the law of God, not only do we get to follow something that shows us exactly what life looks like, we get to follow it as something that is already fulfilled and holds no condemnation for us. Which means we don't follow just in fear. We follow out of delight. Look what God has shown us. He's shown us what life looks like. What a tremendous thing. Not to be brought under the power of anything. Not to define ourselves by what we like or what we think. No, instead, let's define ourselves by Christ. And so what does he say? There's only one way to do this. There's only one way that Jews and Gentiles are going to get along in the church. We're going to read it and then we're going to stop here. He's going to define the fact that we're all part of a singular body. That is Christ. Christ is the head. We are all part of the body. Verse 4, there is one body. Why? Because there's one spirit. God is not divided. He does not have two people any more than he has two spirit. He has one spirit. We are called to one hope that belongs to our calling. And in case it's not clear, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, just because the manifold grace of God, and manifold means from one source to many uh, goals, right? The, ma- the many graces of God has come to us in all sorts of ways. It does not mean that God is in contradiction with himself. It does not mean that God is in competition with himself. Just because there's a church here and a church there does not make it competition. That's our sin coming in. If God is gracious here and God is gracious here, that does not pit us against one another. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling. There's only one body. If that church is part of it, so be it. If it is not, so be it. Our responsibility stands clear the same. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. 
unity, not uniformity, as we were seeing on there. That comes here in just a bit. It is not in turning other people like us. It is in being gracious and loving towards one another that we will be able to walk in a manner worthy of this. It requires, I mean, what does he say here? To walk in a manner worthy. Look at verse 2. What does it look like? Humility, gentleness, and patience, and bearing with one another. I pray that for us. I pray that that be all that we aim for and all that we look at other churches for. We live, we live right here on a, on a meeting of four other churches, you know, in one block radius. Pretty remarkable. You extend that radius to two blocks, I think it's seven churches? It's pretty impressive. I'm not in competition with one of them. If they preach the gospel, I will pray for them. And I will support them. And I will do anything to further the gospel of Christ. If they do not preach the gospel, they are not a church. There. Pretty simple, isn't it? Not complicated. It requires humility of us. It requires bearing with one another. It requires patience. And it's no different inside the walls of a singular church. That is what we are called to. And the only way that happens is the Spirit of God. And this is why you say, you want to know what the Spirit of God is doing in you? Look where you're humble. Look where you're patient. That doesn't come from you. God be praised. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this. We thank you for the tremendous gift that your Spirit is to us. We pray that his constant leadership in our mind and in our hearts drive us to the cross rather than to become just me. We thank you, Father, for Christ. We thank you that in him you are making a singular new people, a nation of priests called after your name that are fervent for good works. Father, while we have a desire for good works, we know that evil lies close at hand, and so we pray that you protect us. Grow us up. May we not be double-tongued or double-minded. Give us wisdom to that end, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.